You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Just a bit of context, we're picking up directly after what Jeremy, what Pastor Jeremy talked about last week, where Jesus was in the wilderness. Um, the devil began to tempt him. He was able to withstand all of that temptation. Um, and then the Spirit of the Lord really comes and rests upon him, and that's where we begin uh, as Jesus is coming back. And that's why right at the beginning of verse 14, it says that Jesus came back from the wilderness, filled in the power of the Spirit. Um, And so before we jump into everything this morning, you'll have to bear with me for a little bit. It's been a little while since I talked to any group that wasn't between the ages of like 11 to 18, (laughs) Um, and I'm a little bit more used to being behind the drum cage. Uh, But in my mind, it's all about perspective. I've got like two scenarios in my head, either... Um, you come away from this morning, uh, hearing the bottom line, hearing the scripture, feeling like the Lord has spoken to you, um, with an understanding that uh, we have so much to be thankful for when it comes to God's character, his goodness, his faithfulness, his steadfastness. Um, or the other part is, the other part of the scenario is that you come away with a, just a renewed appreciation for Pastor Chris. So <laughs> um, it's, it's a win-win here in my mind. Um, But I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we're going to jump into God's Word and see what He has for us this morning, okay? Uh, Father, we thank You for this morning uh, once again. Lord, we're grateful to be able to gather here um, in Your presence. Lord, we know that You are here with us. We know that um, You have given us these words for us to study, for us to um, learn more about You, for uh, Your Son to reveal Himself to us through them. And God, so we pray that as we draw close to You, that You would fulfill Your promise and draw close back to us. God, no matter what it is that we have going on, no matter what the distractions are in our minds, help us to put those aside this morning and for us to um, just grasp so tightly onto what it is that you have for us, God, the things that uh, you're doing behind the scenes that we don't even know about, God, that we're not even thinking about. Um, But we know that you are capable, we know that you are good, and we know that you are faithful. And so we just pray that you would remind us of those things this morning um, and be here with us. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Okay. So like I said, this morning we were in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, um, and I'm going to break this passage apart piece by piece into kind of like three separate sections for you here, but as we go through each of these sections, um, what I want you to focus on, what I want you to remember as we read each of these sections um, is our bottom line for this morning, and that is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and how we receive that truth will guide us. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter if you are able to receive it. It is true. God is unchanging. Um, And so as we read in verse 14 through 30, keep that swirling in your mind. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start just these first two verses here. Let's break it down. Jesus begins his ministry. In verse 14 it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So trying to make this a little bit more relatable, um, right from the start here, it's a little difficult to jump into a passage of scripture without more context or without feeling like maybe you can relate to um, maybe the people who were surrounding Jesus back uh, 2,000 years ago as he's coming back from the wilderness here. Um, So we know that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Like, this is his hometown. This is where, as he's coming back to the synagogue, the people that are in the synagogue with him, they would have 
not just recognized him because his fame was beginning to grow, because he was beginning his ministry, because he had gone and done uh, miracles in other places, but also they would have known him because he grew up there. They would have known his father, Joseph. Um, We see a little later on in the verses that they say, after he starts to prophesy and everything, they say, "Isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? So like they knew they didn't just know him. They knew his parents, right? <laughs> and you know, like, if you're in a small town, if somebody knows your parents, that could be a bad thing, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're a kid or if you're um, a teenager. But uh, what we know from the context that we're given is that these people recognized Jesus. They knew who he was. Um, if not because of his fame, they knew him because that's where he grew up. Uh, and so to make it a little bit more, more relatable here, I have a few names um, that I brought with me this morning. And this is a part where you can participate. I think that participation during uh, worship and during uh, the message is so cool. So as I read these names, all you have to do, if you recognize one of them as I say it, you can just stand up and give me a few jumping jacks. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's all about perspective, though. So now you're going to be really happy that I'm just asking you to raise your hand. <laughs> all right. So the first one that I have this morning, Jason Aldean. Yeah? Okay, yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people know Jason Aldean, country music star. Um, the next one, Little Richard. Okay, yeah. Uh, Sydney Lanier. Okay, yeah, still getting a lot. Jack McBrayer. A few, few less, few less. Oh, I see one in the back. Thanks, Hunter. <laughs> Sonny Carter. All right. David Perdue. Yeah. Nancy Grace. Nice, nice. My mom was, I'm sure she's going to watch this later, but she was a Nancy Grace fiend. She could not get enough of Nancy Grace. So my dad and I had like a running joke about that, but that's beside the point. You don't need to know that. Um, Bud Dupree. Okay. A few people, if you follow like professional football. Um, Last one, Rhett McLaughlin. Does anybody know Rhett and Link from Good Mythical Morning? A few people? Okay. I, I was a little worried. I was like, maybe I have severely overestimated these people's popularity. (laughs) But it seems like you guys knew a lot of them, right? You're familiar with their names. You could probably tell me what they do or who they are, at least. Um, Did you know that every single one of these people was born in Macon, Georgia? Maybe you didn't about a few of them, but uh, that's what ties them all together. They're all from Macon, Georgia. So imagine right now, trying to give this a little bit of context, trying to um, put yourselves in the shoes of the people that were there in the synagogue that day when Jesus came back to his hometown. You know, his fame has begun to spread. So all of these people, uh, some of them have passed away at this point, but imagine all of them are alive. You can just pick one of them, and they come back um, to join us at worship this morning at Piedmont, right? And so this is the kind of like star power that these people are imagining in their minds when Jesus comes back and he begins to read in these verses from the book of Isaiah. Um, But then we're going to see a little later that Jesus began to say some things that didn't sit well with him. Um, And so it's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult because the metaphor breaks apart at some point, (laughs) right? Um, Hopefully none of these people would trash Macon. Uh, But as we read these verses, just imagine, put your shoes in the people, um, in the and put, your, put yourself in the shoes of the people who were sitting around Jesus this day, okay? Beginning in verse 16, um, continuing, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, just this verse, verse 16, there is a key word here that I think is uh, very helpful to latch onto, right? 
you might, if you're just reading this verse by yourself, completely skip over this word, but I think it's important because it reminds us of where Jesus' priorities were. And if you know, the series that we're in right now is First Things First, right? Uh, it's all about priorities. And so what better, what better example is there than Jesus Christ to take priorities from? So we see that this key word here, I'm not going to keep you in the dark, it says, and as was his custom, right? So custom being the key word there. Custom, what does that mean? It means, um, it could mean traditions, something that you do often, maybe once a year, um, Maybe that custom is a little bit more often. Uh, maybe it's some kind of hobby that you have. Maybe you're even doing something uh, that you have uh, enjoyed doing or find it important to do every single day or every single week. And that's exactly what we find here with Jesus. As he comes back to Nazareth, to his hometown, we get to fill in a portion of Jesus's life from the Bible where usually, I mean, Scripture is kind of silent, right? Because we have Jesus' birth, and then we're given a, a tidbit here of, you know, his childhood, like when he was 12 and, you know, stayed behind um, when, his, when his parents were heading back home after, um, you know, the Passover feast and everything. And we don't really know what it looks like for Jesus to be in his early 20s. We don't know what it looks like for Jesus to, um, you know, start ramping up as he's beginning his ministry. But here we get to fill in at least one day of his week. The other six days he might have been, um, you know, doing work, making a living. Uh, it says that he was a carpenter, right, because he was Joseph's son. But on the Sabbath day, what we do know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that Jesus made it his custom to gather with the other people of God and read from their law, read from God's word, and to worship and to commune and in fellowship with other people that believed in the same God that he did. And so when we look at that this morning, if Jesus made that his custom, shouldn't we then make it our custom to do the same? And I mean, that's what we're doing right now, right? This Sunday morning, you woke up, you decided, I'm going to make it to church. Um, And that's that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to gather with other believers in fellowship and to um, seek God in numbers, right? Uh, And so if Jesus did that, and we plan on doing that, then what it looks like is for us to make the intentional choice, to not just wake up on a Sunday and feel like, uh, I might have better things to do, or I've got something else that could take the spot of church this morning. Because if you really look hard enough, you'll always find something to do. You'll always find something that seems like it's important enough to skip out on church in the morning, right? And the reality is that you have to be intentional the way that Jesus was intentional about making it your custom to gather with other believers. Um, One other thing about this, and then I'll, I'll keep moving forward so that we can see the rest of the passage, but Jesus... If anybody has the excuse where they could say, ah, I'm, able to, I'm able to pray, and God and me are good, right? <laughs> I'm able to go out in nature and just really feel like I can experience God out there in the trees, whether I'm hiking or, or like playing golf or something. And that is 100% true. I think that you absolutely, absolutely can experience God and worship God in nature, out doing something that you love that makes you feel closer to him, um, but one thing I think you, you should ask yourself if that is becoming a point where on Sunday mornings you're waking up and you're like, I might go to the golf field this morning or the, the golf course. Um, I might be able to you know, just feel like I can experience God there. Um, 
if it isn't your custom, going to church on Sundays, uh, then if you make it your custom to go to the golf course, are you making that your custom, and are you waking up that morning going to play golf at, at the golf course because you plan on worshiping God or because you plan on playing golf, right? And I mean, that is it's a, kind of a harsh truth, but I think that that is the kind of things that we need to remind each other when it comes to accountability, when it comes to being able to tell each other, hey, like, listen, this is worth investing in. This is worth investing in not just your own personal relationship with the Lord, but it's also worth investing in the people that are around you. Worth investing in that community that you find when you come here um, or wherever it is that you go in order to gather with other believers and do the things that God has called you to, to, to do and begin to be more and more filled with the Spirit so that he can empower you to go out and invest in your community around you. To the people that Chris was just talking about, the 100,000 or so people that not just don't know the Lord, but maybe have no heart for the Lord and don't have any clue about what kind of consequences come along with that, not just in eternity, but in their own life, the kind of joy that they're missing out on when they don't choose to follow Jesus with their heart, right? And so we're going to continue this morning um, to a prophecy that Jesus begins to read from. In Luke chapter 4, verse 17, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And there are a couple of very interesting things here, I think. Um, the first is if we go in a little bit and break down exactly what this scroll from Isaiah is saying that Jesus is reading from. He begins and it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Right? And so one thing that we have recognized here is that not only is Jesus reading from the scripture, but right after this in the verses that follow, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all, these, of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which means that Jesus, after reading from a scroll that was written hundreds and hundreds of years before his life on earth and before any of those people that had gathered that morning and probably was something that those people had heard if they made it their custom to be in the synagogue every Sabbath day, they probably had heard that verse read to them before. But now all of a sudden, this Jesus, who once again, they knew because this was his hometown that they were in, they said, Is, isn't this Joseph's son? Because he proclaimed to them not just that these are God's words, but that this prophecy is speaking about me. Jesus literally told them, these words that you're hearing are the words that come from my mouth. And so we see that in the beginning where it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Of course, the spirit of the Lord is upon him, right? We look and see um, that next part, part that says, because he has anointed me, that word anointing, uh, in their context in, in Jewish law, would have referred to um, probably something that they could reference in their minds because it was a part of their religion where um, somebody who was anointed was usually anointed with oil, right, on their head. Um, and that was a symbol, and they, they understood it to be a symbol of the Spirit of God resting upon that person. That's like why when they would anoint a new king, 
they were saying not just, hey, let's just pour some oil on this guy's head, but they were saying this is a symbol that God's spirit is resting upon this man who will be our king and lead us not just in his own ways, but lead us in the power of the Lord, in the will of the Lord. And that's more important than anything else, right? If you're going to be a leader, you need to lead the people in the way that God would have them led. You don't want to lead somebody in a direction opposite from what God wants. And so as Jesus is speaking, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He also says these things, to proclaim good news to the poor. And so now we get to a point where he begins to speak and say that he is proclaiming liberty and proclaiming life and proclaiming salvation and joy and hope to certain groups of people. And everybody falls in to the same group. When it says poor, he's not talking about poor as a lack of wealth, right? Um, in that day, probably a lot of people would have considered themselves to be poor by lack of wealth. I mean, there are people just struggling to make it by. Um, even today, you might be able to say, hey, I feel like I'm struggling to make it by from time to time. And the good news is that, yes, Jesus is speaking to you, but it's not because of a lack of wealth. It's not because of um, your financial resources. But instead, we see that in Scripture, those who are poor are poor because sin has impoverished them. Then it continues. He says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Sin enslaves. Not, not only does sin impoverish you, but sin enslaves you. Sin keeps you in chains that you are not able to break free from on your own. Maybe you have experienced that. Um, maybe you can recognize, look back in your own life and think to yourself and see and pinpoint, hey, these are things that, man, I know that without the Lord's power, I would never have been able to, to, to break away from these things. And then he continues and he says, and recovery of sight to the blind. And not only is that a physical thing, right? I mean, there were people who were, of course, healed of their actual physical blindness back then. But another thing that sin does is it blinds us. It blinds us to who God is. It blinds us to who we are. And it also blinds us to how deeply we are deprived when it comes to a comparison between God's standard of perfection and our life that we're living, right? And so sin impoverishes us, it enslaves us, it blinds us. And finally, we see here that it says, sin oppresses us. Jesus speaks and he says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And here, I think, is one of the coolest parts from this prophecy that Jesus is reading. At the beginning of the verses, Remember that he says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty. But then he finishes with, he has sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Meaning that Jesus is not just a prophet. Uh, the prophets were people who were given words directly from God in order to go to the people and to tell them, hey, this is coming. And to go and say, remember, this is who God is. Remember, this is who you are and who you were meant to be, and this is why those things aren't matching up. And Jesus definitely fulfills that part of what a prophet is, right? But he goes a step further, and unlike any of the prophets who had come before him, right? Unlike any of the priests that the people went to um, to, to help with the atonement for their sins, um, no matter what it was that they, they went to that priest for, unlike all of those people, Jesus is set apart because not only does he proclaim liberty, but he also sets us at liberty. 
He is the one who breaks the chains that we find ourselves in when it comes to sin. He is the one who gives sight to the blind. He is the one who is able to pull us, pull us out of whatever pit it is that we find ourselves in. And for all of us in this room this morning, that might look like very different things. You might think that you fall into a different category where sin has impoverished you, sin has blinded you, sin has somehow kept you in chains. And the, the fact of the matter here is that Jesus has set us free from all of it. And he finishes reading by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this, this last note here I think is interesting. Um, as I was studying and looking back, I actually went back to Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And this is where he's actually reading from. The scroll that he has, if you flip back in your Bible, you can find it. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. He actually stops reading before the end of that verse. And you can go like, Mateo, it, it was really different back then. You know, they didn't have the Bible like we do. They didn't have the divisions of like books and, and chapters and verses. And yes, that's true. But where Jesus stops reading is still of importance because there's like a comma there. And so he reads in verse one, all the way until almost the verse two, but doesn't, does not finish the verse. And why is that? Because the next verse in Isaiah 61 it finishes by saying, and the day of vengeance of our Lord. And so when he sits down, he couldn't have said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your ears if he had finished the whole verse. Because there is like a, at, at least a 2,000 year space separating that prophecy where that comma is. Because what he was saying is that this is the year of the Lord's favor which is a reference to, um, you might have heard it uh, before, it's called the year of Jubilee. Um, it's described in more detail in Leviticus chapter 25, where um, I actually have something written about it because I don't want to butcher it. <laughs> um, we see that in Leviticus 25, the principal legislation in the Bible um, on the year of Jubilee is basically three salient obligations. One, talking about the release of slaves. Two, talking about the forgiveness of debts. And three, talking about the repatriation of property in the Jubilee year. And so the primary theological base of that legislation, those three points that are talked about in Leviticus 25, is that the land and the people belong to God, not to anybody else. Meaning that as God desires, he is able to redistribute, free people from debt, free people from their chains. And one thing that's amazing is that when Jesus talks about that here at the end of this verse, when he says that it, this is the year of the Lord's favor and that he is issuing in this new age that people are going to be living in, they had no clue what he was talking about. They were like, yeah, we get it. Like this happens every seven cycles of like sabbatical years, right? But no, like this is more than that. He's saying like, I am the beginning of this new age. This age that we call the church age now where we are able to gather and not just have knowledge of everything that Jesus has done to set us free from sin by dying on the cross and raising again from the dead that these people had no idea about. We're blessed with the knowledge of that today and to be able to understand that that's the age that we get to live in right now because of Jesus's sacrifice, because of the salvation that he brings. And that is a reason to have joy, right? He is our reason for joy. And so as we finish in this prophecy, 
and see that that comma is separating the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the Lord's vengeance, you can say, okay, well, then what is the day of the Lord's vengeance? And we can see that that is also called the day of the Lord in many different uh, prophetical books in Scripture. But basically, that is Jesus' second coming. When he comes back and he wages war on death, um, on sin, and everything around us is transformed because of the new heaven and new earth and new age that he is ushering in. When he comes back, not just to be the humble servant that he came to be the first time, but when he comes back to be the king of kings and lord of lords that we know him to be. Absolutely. Um, And so what the people are hearing from Jesus might be confusing to them. Um, Does that excuse the way that they act in the next section here where they reject him and um, basically take him to the edge of a cliff to throw him off because of how upset they are with what he said? Obviously not. But we also cannot look at them and say, man, why were they confused? How often do you in your own life have situations that arise where you have to just reflect for a second or pray to God and say, man, Lord, what are you doing here? I cannot see how all the pieces are working together. But at the end of the day, when we come back to this bottom line and recognize if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then isn't he just as good as he was back here in in Scripture? Isn't he just as knowledgeable? Isn't he just as all-powerful? Isn't he able to do a good thing from terrible, terrible things all put together that come from the actions of sin um, and, and humans? Isn't he able to turn those for good, um, for his glory and for, for our good? And the answer is always yes. And so as we look at that and see in our own lives, hey, like I'm confused about what God's doing, that doesn't mean he's not working. It just means that we don't know what he's doing. And that's okay. And for, I mean, you might be like a bit of a control freak. You might be like, I have to have a plan for everything. I have to know how the pieces of this puzzle of my life fit together. Isn't that what faith is, right? Isn't that what the whole point of surrendering to Jesus is? For us to say, you take, take the wheel of my life. Take um, control over where my life is going. Take the things that I have that you've given to me that I'm just being a steward of right now. Take them back and use them through me to be able to reach not just the people around me, but also everyone else that comes into contact with me for your glory. And so finally here we come to where the people reject Jesus. And we see that he gives them two Gentile examples of people that were not Jewish and they were living on the outskirts of, um, on the out, outside of uh, where God's people lived. And in these verses, um, I'll read them quickly as we wrap up through them. He says, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, the people listening, 
all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, I, like, I don't know if you think that the last part of that is crazy or not, but when these people are upset with Jesus, it's because we don't know for sure whether or not they've told him explicitly, like, hey, we need to see a miracle. Like, you've already done a miracle somewhere else. This is your hometown. You should be doing one for us, right? And Jesus is, I mean, he's not happy with that response, right? When it comes to miracles, um, Jesus does them as the Father willed for him to do in order that God's glory could be shown. But these people here, I mean, when they're asking Jesus for a miracle, they've already heard about the things that Jesus has done. They've already seen Jesus grow up. And yet they still don't believe into him that he is who he says he is. And so Jesus tells them, basically, I'm not going to do a miracle right here in front of you. I, you can think about all of these other things that were done. And when we see in scripture who he references, it's basically saying like, these people were unwilling to see what God was putting right in front of them because they were looking for some miracle, right? In their own minds, they were looking for something in a very specific way that God was not planning to fulfill his promises through that way that they were looking for. And Jesus is saying the same thing to these people. And this is why they're so frustrated and filled with wrath over what he has said to them is because he tells them that you are basically just like the people who were never healed and the people who were never ministered to back here when we, we like read um, about Elisha and how he performed miracles for um, these two Gentile people that were living on the outskirts of the town. And so they're not happy with that answer, and they take him to a cliff to throw him off. And what does it say? He walked in their midst away from them. How does that happen? <laughs> right? Like, imagine right now that you, I mean, this would be terrible, but imagine you are very upset with this person, and so are so many other people. You all gather, take them to a, the edge of a cliff, and it's like a hundred to one, right? How do you lose hold of that person before you're able to do what you want with them? And it says, like, Jesus so nonchalantly just walked through their midst and away from them, and they did not realize that that was a miracle in and of itself, once again, it was a miracle that because they were not expecting it, they didn't recognize it. And so, coming full circle here, with everything that we see from Scripture, with the knowledge that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and knowing that that truth will guide us if we allow it to work in our lives the way that God plans for it to, we have to see that our understanding of change is not, doesn't match up with um, what change actually is, right? If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then as we're going about our lives, the only reference we have is what we've experienced, yes? And so sometimes we might think to ourselves, change is usually a good thing, though, right? Change drives um, us closer to where we want to be, especially like with technology and everything. Stuff has changed so much over the past 200 years, per se, um, I've actually got a few things that I thought were really funny when I was looking them up. Um, I expected to be a little bit bored with looking them up uh, earlier this week, but they actually turned out to be kind of funny to me. The Quarterly Review in 1825, so this is a long time ago, okay? It quoted, what can be more palpably absurd than the prospect held out of locomotives traveling twice as fast, twice as, fast as stagecoaches? <laughs> 
Or DeForest, um, a scientist and inventor in 1926 said, while theoretically and technically television may be feasible, commercially and financially I consider it an impossibility, a development of which we need not waste time dreaming. <laughs> right? Like there would be a lot of upset people on Super Bowl Sunday if they didn't have their big flat screen television, right? <laughs> William Baxter of Popular Science in 1901 said, as a means of rapid transit, aerial navigation, planes, could not begin to compete with the railroad. We know, we know that's not true. I'm from Virginia. I'd be very confused about how to get to and from if we didn't have planes, right? I have never ridden on like a, a train on a railroad my entire life. The last one here, the Literary Digest in 1889 said, the ordinary horseless carriage, a car, is at present a luxury for the wealthy, and although its price will probably fall in the near future, it will never, of course, come into as common use as the bicycle. <laughs> That's ridiculous, right? <laughs> That's crazy. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm not driving or I'm not riding a bicycle to work every morning. That's, that's not happening. Um, and thankfully, it doesn't because our society has changed. Our technology has changed. And so because of that, I think we have in our minds this idea that change is always good. Change drives us forward. It, it puts us closer to where we think we need to be. But let me ask you this. Is change good if something is already perfect? Now, if there is a standard of perfection, right, if there is absolute truth, if there is absolute perfection, and that thing changes, it can only get worse. Or it can only, um, it can only uh, basically become less. And so if we take God for who he is, knowing that from Scripture even, in Hebrews 13.8, the author of Hebrews says about Jesus that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we apply his immutability, or basically just the big word that theologians use to say that God is unchanging, to God himself, God the Father, who is, of course, unchanging, knowing that he is all-powerful, knowing that he is all-knowing, knowing that he is the standard for perfection and for goodness and for faithfulness in our lives. If he changes at all, is he still God? And I think that we gloss over this concept too often. And that's why, like this, the third song that we sang this morning, the same God, what is it to truly say to God, you are the same God? What does that mean when you declare, not only over your own life, but over the people in your life that you've invested in, that you love, to declare over them that the same God that is in their life today was the same God who is in Scripture, the same God at the beginning of creation, the same God who sent Jesus down to die for our sins. The same God who at the end of it all, as described in Revelation, will bring about this new age, usher in this new age where there is no more death, no more sin, no more pain, no more tears, no more any of these things that are bad because he is ruling over all of it and there is no place for any of it in his kingdom, right? And if we want to be a part of that, what does it mean to declare over your own life, over those people that you love, that this same God that you serve today is the same God who rose Jesus Christ from the grave? This is the last point here. Um, I actually did a, a lot of math prep last summer. <laughs> I was pretty sure that I was going to be a math teacher at the beginning of this past school year. <laughs> that fell through. That did not happen. Um, but you guys get to benefit a little bit from the 
like 20 hours of like textbook review that I did last summer because I'm certainly not benefiting from it now. So I figured that I would share that wealth with you, right? Um, and as I begin to share this, I'm also like not a super nerd. Like I understand that math is something that God's given us and I see the importance of it and interacting with his creation that he's placed around us. Like I think it is a gift from God, but I'm also like not doing math drills in my free time, okay? Hear that before I show you this. <laughs> um, you can go ahead and throw this on the screen right here. Does anybody know what this is right here? Pythagorean theorem, man. I'm telling you, my man Pythagoras did not miss when he, when he came up with this. Um, I don't know about you guys, but in my life, like, I have had moments where just random math things will come back to me, and I'll see how I'm using it, and I'll be like, I gave my teacher such a hard time, and, like, I joked with other students about never using this, ever. Never going to need this don't know why we're learning this. I just like failed this math test and it's all for naught because I don't care. <laughs> this part, Pythagoras' theorem, like, uh, like I drive um, a CentOS truck for a living. And so when I am out on route, sometimes I think to myself like, man, getting from one stop to the other, um, say like I'm going down a road, like three miles. And then I take a right and I go four more miles and I arrive at my next stop and I think to myself, man, I could have just driven five miles from point A to point B in a straight line and gone through a lot of people's backyards and had like a lot of people upset at me, but that would have been like, that would have cut that time in half, right? Um, and so when it comes to math, we just accept that math doesn't change, right? Yes, technology and science and um, all of these things and our understanding of them changes, but math, I mean, it's solid. What would it be like if all of a sudden physics and the laws that we have for physics and these math formulas that people have um, come up with to give us a, a, a wider understanding of how God means for us to interact with the creation that he's placed us in, what would it be like if everything just changed one morning? You woke up and all of a sudden two plus two is no longer equal to four. Chaos, right? <laughs> Absolute chaos. And so we're thankful Maybe you don't even realize it, but I'm sure deep in your heart, you're thankful for math. You're thankful for the fact that it doesn't change on you. You're thankful for the fact that you can wake up and two plus two is still equal to four, and it allows you to go throughout your day for you to be functional, for you to actually do the things that you need to do, because math doesn't change. And yet we wake up some mornings and we think to ourselves, is God really good? I know I believed it yesterday, but is God really doing something behind the scenes in my life? Is he really taking this situation that I found myself in, whether it's you've lost your job or you experienced the death of a loved one, no matter what it is that's difficult, I'm there with you. I wake up some mornings and I'm like, what are you doing, God? And the reality is that we don't have to know what he's doing to still have faith that he does not change that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that in the narrative of scripture that we are blessed to be able to be on this side of um, the cross and be able to know that, yeah, Jesus is God. He came down. He died for my sins. He rose again from the grave. And that gives me joy, hope, and the will and power to be able to go throughout every single day knowing that every bit of strife and struggle and pain that I experience has a purpose because God has a purpose for me. That is where we find ourselves at when we declare how God is the same yesterday, today, and forever over our lives. That is what Jesus is asking 
these people in the synagogue who are there with him who are unwilling to understand through their confusion because they don't get how it all fits together, that is what they are asking, what Jesus is asking them to understand and what he's asking you to understand now as well. God has not given up on you. When you wake up this morning and find something in your life has drastically changed, God has not changed. His gospel has not changed. His character, his perfection has not changed. His plan and his purpose for you has not changed. The plan and purpose that he had for you before the foundations of the world were laid. All of it is steadfast. All of it is solid. And it all leads us to one place where maybe you're in this room and you have been lost throughout like half of this message because you're like, I don't think I've ever even placed my faith in Jesus from the get-go. I'm not even really sure what that means. Or maybe even you're in this room and you've been going to church, you've made it your custom to go to church since you could walk, basically. Like if the doors were open, you were there, you were helping out. For both of those categories of people this morning, are we prioritizing our faith? What does that look like to prioritize your faith? What does it look like to say, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, no matter what I face? Three things, and I'm done. The first one is that you can pray. Pray like Jesus did. Pray heartfelt and genuine prayers back to God, telling him your struggles, telling him your frustrations, but also in your mind knowing that he is listening, he loves you, and those two things does not mean he has to answer your prayer in the way that you think it should be answered. Secondly, in the things that you say, the words that you speak, the things that you allow to come out of your mouth, others are listening, right? And when we think about that, and we think about what that means, what does it mean for us to prioritize our faith in the way that we speak, in the words that come out of our mouth? And then finally here, and just in our actions, and what you do. How do you prioritize your faith in the way that you live your life, in the way that it's expressed to the people around you, where like if you could not speak, your actions would say enough about your faith, about your trust in Jesus, and the joy that you have because of your salvation in him. And so as we move back into a time of worship and wrap up here, Hopefully, you'll go from here today knowing that Jesus loves you just as much as he did yesterday, that there's nothing you could do to ever change it, that there's no action that you could have that could separate you from his love, but also knowing that that does not give us the excuse to run from him. That does not give us the excuse to run as far as we want, knowing that he'll drag us back. Because if we are going to fully experience the joy that he has for us, knowing that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, it requires us drawing closer and closer to him, even when it's uncomfortable, because we know that there are things in our life that don't match up with what he has for us. But that's just the point. We don't, we don't run away hoping to clean ourselves up where Jesus isn't looking and then come back presenting ourselves before him. No, we come to him even if you are saved, we come to him knowing that every single day he wants to refresh and renew you and restore you. 
And lastly, for that group of people that maybe you've never placed your faith into the Lord, um, I'd encourage you to come to talk to one of the pastors here. Um, come talk to me. I'll be standing down here at the, during this last song. Um, I'd love to share with you, and we would love to share with you, the next steps that you can take to help you prioritize faith. Maybe you've never done that before. To help you place faith in Jesus so that you can stand um, knowing in your faith that because of Jesus, you and your faith in him, you will get to experience eternity with him forever in this new kingdom that he wants to usher in. At the day of the Lord where for others where it's a day of vengeance, it can be for us a day of restoration. So I'm gonna pray here and then we're gonna sing our last song. God, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how you are unchanging. We thank you for what that means in our own lives, even where we don't understand it, even where we're confused, even when everything around us looks like it's falling apart. God, we know that you being unchanging means that your perfection is enough. Your love is enough. Your steadfastness and faithfulness is enough in our lives. And God, we're thankful for all of it. We're thankful that as we draw close to you, that you will draw nearer to us. We're thankful for your promises um, to never leave us, to never forsake us. And God, if we're struggling with anything this morning, as we conclude in this time of worship, we pray that we would be so real, surrendering whatever it is that we are holding onto with white knuckles back to you, knowing that the same God who had power to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, the same God who was able to speak life into an entire generation of people and, and have for them joy and salvation and a future hope that you and that power are still just as potent today in our own lives. And so we thank you for all of these things. And we pray this in your holy and in your precious name. Amen.